Apparently she's on the mend. Uh, Does she have COVID? That's my understanding. Is Jared going to be here? No. Jared will not. They're quarantined for the next few days. Yeah. Brought some up. Uh, do we want to, do we want to put uh, the joy of song under it as a foundation, <laughs> or do we want to put the holy scripture under it as a foundation? You don't what, want it you're, right
stuck to my finger. <laughs> Do we have a envelope? Do we have those? We have no bulletins today. Uh, Genesis 15, 7 through 21. Genesis 15. What is it? 17 seven. through 21. 15, 7 through 21. 7 through 21. <clears throat> and that's for the... Uh, that's the scripture reading. Okay. Ashton, did you go? Did you call Kim and Janelle about one of their girls playing piano? They're on vacation. It's not this week, I don't think. It's possible they extended another week, so. Oh. But we'll find out. It's nearly time to start. But. Yeah, I don't know why that's sitting up there like well, that. Well, they needed it for the sound. That's why we I, I put them under there for you. Well, we better. Want to go pray real quick? Or? Brandon? Is this okay like this? Can you hear it? everybody. I'm right here. <laughs> I think COVID is taking its, its toll. toll.
Bottle House too, but we didn't realize about five years ago that there was a bottle house next to us. Her sewer line, from back in the day when they put this together, runs into ours. And so it's like kind of like a, you know, like a Y shape comes under our property. And they dug up our driveway. She had it too, backing up in her basement about five years ago. And so they didn't know where the line was. They couldn't find it. They dug under our driveway, cracked up all our cement and everything. She was supposed to replace that, but didn't. But we have a new driveway now. But um, found out that it's right in a little patch in front of our house. Well, we had problems. That she had more problems again with all this rain. Uh, it was backing up in her basement. It just went through our So we had to pull a rotor and it came out and did ours. And that sucked hers down. Sit there for a preacher. Good morning. Good morning. Officially. <laughs> we are a Spartan group this morning. I will give you some announcements that I have information on, and then we'll ask uh, folks if they have any updates or things on current events uh, relating to the church. First of all, the Luke family, uh, Jared has talked with Brendan and he conveyed to me that everybody in one way or another has some form of, of this virus uh, except for Hannah. She's the only one that doesn't seem to be exhibiting any symptoms. Andrea is feeling substantially better from what I understand, but is still understandably uh, laid low. Uh, I don't know the extent of the other girls uh, where they're at. Subsequently, we have no bulletins to speak of, and we will be winging it as far as the song service goes. Um, does anybody have any updates on the on the prayer chain that Terry, uh, your friend, with no, the, uh, no update as of now. Okay, so he's still in intensive care. Intensive care, yeah. And his wife is also sick at home, and they have two girls that are not sick. Do you have their names that we can commit uh, that to? Jason first? is his name. I don't know the other three. Jason's family, essentially. Yeah. Is, 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 do you know what he's in the hospital for? For COVID. Oh, for COVID. Okay. Anybody else have any any uh, prayer requests or issues that uh, we need to address? A lot of people are on the road traveling. Um, the Marshals, I believe, are still on vacation. Uh, the Lukes, again, like I said, they're, they're out. It's about half the congregation right there, <laughs> it seems. So, uh, Sandy, we're happy to have you back with us. Uh, you're helping to bolster the numbers a little bit there. Yeah, you've got to replace uh, 16 <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 
I don't have a uh, scripture for medication, so I'll begin the service right now. We'll, we'll open with prayer. If you'll stand with me, we'll, we'll begin. <coughs> Father in heaven, almighty God, Jehovah, we come to you this morning with, with joyful hearts and the knowledge that you have saved us from the abyss, from the the pit of death and destruction, you have deigned to save us to yourself. You've grafted us into the tree of life. You have given us this, this tremendous gift of salvation. And I pray, Father, as we go about this day, Lord, we would be reminded about it every moment that we take a breath, every moment that we can see the wonders of nature and your doing about us that we would be continually grateful at all of this. We ask, Father, for the, the family of this young man that's, that's in intensive care, his wife who's also sick and his children, that your hand of grace be upon them, that you would raise them up, and that they would know your glory. For our pastor, we're Lord, we pray for continuing recovery that you continue to raise him up and strengthen him as he brings forth this message. Father, we pray that as he does so, the words that come from his lips that are by your hand and your will and your orchestration would be used to convict the lost. Let them know where they are in this world, that without God, without Christ in their life, their life is hopeless and due for destruction, and rightfully so. But Father, on the same token, we ask, Lord, that the words that the pastor brings are used to reassure us, those of us that are in Christ, that his word would be of comfort to us, that we would go about our day with the knowledge that Christ has imbued us with his love and his grace, and more importantly, the salvation, and the knowledge that we are truly in the history of life. We think of the, the people around the world, Lord, that are also hurting, that are without hope. And Father, I pray your grace be upon them. The country of Haiti suffered this tremendous earthquake this weekend. Hundreds are dead. And Lord, it's a nation that has well been known to practice in the occults. And Father, we pray that you would bring leaders to that nation that would spiritually lift them out of this occult worship and set them on a footing of Christ. Mm -hmm. We think of our American citizens that are in the capital of Afghanistan that are trying to be evacuated. Lord, we pray for your grace and your encouragement to them, to our troops that are going to rescue them and bring them home. We pray, Lord, that your grace be upon them, that your strength go forth and show your glory to the people of that country and reassure the people that are from our country that they have safety in the Lord. Be with this small group this day, Lord. Have your spirit commune with us, lead us, and walk us through the day and through the week. We'll give you the honor and the glory in all of this. In the name of Christ we ask, amen. Amen. We have no piano player today, so, as I've always said and maintained, 
if you can hear me singing, you're not singing loud enough. <laughs> so what I would like from, from you is we're going to pick a couple of songs. I have no song schedule. Pick one that we can all sing. Dale, you have one? Forty-three in the brown. Let's give it a try. <clears throat> Ready?
seated. Thank you. Let's do one more. Uh, someone have another pick for something easy? Uh, 7 through 21. Chapter 15, 
verses 7 through 21. stand when you come to the verse. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur and of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I, am, I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun has, had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the, these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenzanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and, and the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Anybody have one more before we begin service? One more, one more hymn. <clears throat> How about one oh six? in the handle. <clears throat> and remember, please sing loud. <laughs> Song. 
Well, our text is Genesis 15. Well, lots of people out sick, some away on vacation. And so, here we are. (laughs) When last we were in our study of the patriarchs, we observed Abram coming to the rescue of his nephew Lot, who had been captured along with all the people of Sodom by a federation of four kings. Abram pursued these marauders, rescued Lot, and all those who had been kidnapped, and they returned them along with their possessions to Sodom. But in so doing, he refused to take any of the spoils of war, which was the customary uh, reward for victory, but he wouldn't take it. Abraham's thinking, he stated, I have raised my hand to the Lord Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will take nothing belonging to you. He's speaking to the king of Sodom here. Not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, 
so that you will never be able to say, well, I made Abraham rich. We find, found out that God honored that decision. And so in our last study, we heard God say to Abram, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your great reward. I think that's a great truth that we need to understand as the children of Abraham. God is our shield and God is our great reward. So Abram, as well as we, need this encouragement from God. Because of our faith, we are sure to suffer losses at times from the unbelieving world that is all too eager to blame the woes of society on Christians. Just as Hitler blamed the woes of Germany on who? The Jews. This is done to justify persecution. It's done to justify genocide. And God came to Abraham and says, I'm your shield. I'm your shield. We learn secondly that God himself pledged to be Abram's great reward. Abram disallowed the spoils of Sodom as his reward because he wanted no braggadocio coming from Sodom's king that he said had somehow made Abram rich. None of that. We learn that we are never the losers for seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because God is debtor to no one. He isn't. We are slaves working hard for another. Whatever you do, work as it were with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Colossians 3, verse 23 and 24. We're serving the master. We don't do it for our rewards, but we know we're going to get a reward because God is debtor to no one. Well, today we return to Genesis 15 to study the ratification of the covenant that God made with Abram. And as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Father, we are small in number today, but we're large in our hearts and in our faith to trust you. Whether we are great in number or small in number, you are our God, you are our Savior, and we praise you for that. We thank you that it's you that's the important factor, not us. Now we benefit because God is our God. And God, you are our Savior. So we do benefit from that. But in so saying, our great desire and our great heart is that you get the glory, that you be lifted up and exalted, that the gospel goes forth with power and authority for the namesake of Jesus. And boy, does our country need to hear the gospel of grace. Works, works, works. Everybody's involved in works, trying to get to heaven on their own merit, not understanding in the least that there's not enough merit in anything they do 
to impress God. He who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine is not, is not impressed by the labors of our hands. It is faith that pleases God, the scripture says. And that's the very thing we don't have. It must be given by your grace. So I pray that you will do that. We're small in number, but enlarged in heart today. So we pray your blessing upon our study. Be with those that couldn't be here, listening on uh, the radio or on TV. And we just pray that you'll bless them as well. We ask this for the glory of Jesus, whom we serve. Amen. Today we're looking at the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm referring to the fact that he had a promised heir that was given as part of the covenant. But also land. An heir and land. Clear back in Genesis 12, we studied the initial promise of God to Abram. Let me read it for you. First two verses of Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Genesis 12, verse 1 and 2. That is the the initial statement of the Abrahamic promise that God made to him. Now there are more promises concerning land. When tensions arose between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen over insufficient pasture land, you remember that? They didn't have enough land to graze both men's vast herds of livestock. So Lot chose the entire fertile Jordan Valley as he left. And he left nothing but the highlands to Abraham. You know anything about Palestine? The highlands, I would call them the badlands. They're the barren lands. So you're going to, Lot is going to take the whole valley where the Jordan River rises and goes right through that land. When it goes into its flood stage, you can imagine, it floods both sides of the Jordan. So that whole area is very fertile. And I think it was nothing more than greed. He he looked at that and said, wow, that's good pasture land there. That's going to be great for my livestock. Uh, I choose the Jordan Valley. (laughs) And that didn't leave anything but the highlands to Abram. But the important thing to keep in mind is that Lot was never promised the land. God didn't promise it to Lot. He promised it to Abraham. So we read, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him. Here's what he said. Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look north, south, east, west. All the land 
that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Genesis 13, verse 14 and following. Now here are two chapters. Two chapters later, there is still discussion about the land. Verse 7 and 8. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? Genesis 15, verse 7 and 8. In other words, why all this talk about land? What is so important about land that God himself kept bringing up the subject every time he talks to Abraham about his promise? Oh, here we go again. Going to get a speech about the land. I want you to think about this. If the heirs of God promised Abraham were to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, verse 5, they were going to need a place to live. They were going to need a place to flourish. A place that would support the population and sustain it. We've already studied the parting of the two men, Lot and Abram, over what? Insufficient land. Yeah. Not enough land to graze the livestock. Now multiply that a thousand times over. And there is a great demand for land. Do you know that land is often the reason nations go to war against one another? They get their eyes looking and they say, boy, that is a nice piece of property there. That would, I could graze my cattle there or my sheep there for a long, long time. I mean, and it's got a river running through it. I don't even have to dig wells. The American-Mexican War resulted in the United States annexing land, which today comprises part of California, all of Utah, all of Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. That was the war. Mexican-American War. And it was sparked originally by annexing Texas, which the Mexican government opposed and eventually resisted in the battle for the Alamo when Santa Ana sent his troops there and killed every last settler defending the mission. They took that pretty seriously, didn't they? The French and Indian War, 1756. The French were intruding into the Ohio Valley and Britain, under William Pitt, fought back and won. At the peace conference in 1763, the British received Canada from France and Florida from Spain, but they permitted France to keep its West Indian sugar island and they gave Louisiana to Spain. The treaty strengthened the American colonies significantly 
by removing their European rivals to the north and to the south and opening the Mississippi Valley to westward expansion. Land, water, very vital. I think it's likely not an exaggeration that most wars are fought over territory. And with the acquisition of land comes all the resources of that land. Think about that. Waterways, mineral deposits, oil. Oh yeah, there's a biggie. Grazing landscapes, farmland, orchards, as well as cities, industries, raw materials, avenues for commerce, which heretofore they did not have. See, it's not just the dirt. It's what's on the dirt or in the dirt or under the dirt that's important. Even today, Israel's little sliver of land, just think about this, is a little sliver of land along the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. It's always in dispute by the Palestinians who lost the land at the close of World War II when the Allied forces deeded the land to Israel in concession for their terrible losses under Hitler's genocide of the Jews. And the Palestinians have not liked that ever since. With regard to Abram and the land of Canaan, all the nations presently occupying the land in his day are listed for us in verse 19. Ten nations, in all, you might ask, what right had God to dispossess all these nations to give the land to Abram? Because that's exactly what he did. He took the land of the ten nations and, boom, gave it to Abram. Moses writes to the Lord, your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. David wrote a song. These are his words. A song. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 24, verse 1. From God's own lips. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Psalm 50, verse 12. Sounds to me like the Creator is saying, Hey, the land, you want to talk about who owns the land? I own the land. Men squabble in their treaties to see who will get what is in the land and the resources, but God sets up kings and brings rulers to ruin and along with them their empires. Paul told the Athenians, from one man, he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Wow. God did this. So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Acts 17, verse 26 and 27. The land belongs to God. 
the Creator. And there are multiple stories of the Wild West in which men fought one another for grazing rights and strung barbed wire to keep other people's cattle and sheep off their land. That's the way they looked at it. Even today, hunters are confronted with no trespassing posters, which landowners nail to trees to alert people that they are entering private property and should stay away. Neighbors lose their sense of being neighborly when one of them blows grass clippings over the boundary line. A feud can develop that lasts for years and fuels a lot of animosity over a little bit of land. Well, God spared Abram all this by pledging himself, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. And Abram picked up on God's word. Possess? Hmm. Possess. And he asked, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Verse 8. Well, that's a good, good question. The land is occupied by other people, and you're saying, I'm going to possess this land. How's that going to happen? How, how, how will I gain possession? Well, that brings us to my second point, and that's the cutting of the covenant. Abraham was instructed to bring certain animals, a heifer, a goat, a ram, two birds. Heifer, goat, a ram, and two birds. These were killed by Abraham and placed opposite each other in an adjoining rows, thus forming an aisleway. So you have the ram separated the goats, part here, part here. So you've got to walk way down the middle. Animals on either side. These were killed and opened and sacrificed, thus forming an aisleway wide enough for two consenting parties to walk together to ratify the covenant that they were making. That was the whole purpose. And it was significant that God set aside Abraham in this process by a deep sleep of dreadful darkness, verse 12. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How can you have a covenant if one of them is going to sleep through it? Well, that's the point. Verse 13 states, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that would be Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. That's still Egypt. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That's Egypt. You, however, will go to your father in peace and be buried at a good old age. And then the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 
Now, that's very interesting. How can God say to Abram, know for certain? Know for certain. Because in the cutting of the covenant, the only, now get this, the only active party in the ratification process is God himself. Say, wait a minute. I thought this was a covenant between Abram and God. It is. But the only active party in the ratification process is God himself. I mean, Abraham is asleep, right? It says a thick cloud of darkness enshrouded him in this unconscious state. So God has moved him out of the picture. God's the only one present. God is the only one active in the ratification process. And God was saying, in effect, this is one covenant, Abraham, where you will reap all the benefits without having to lift a hand to comply with any of the terms. I'm going to do it all. This was the sure certainty to Abraham that God's promises to him would come true. They will come true because all the frailties which befall sinful men, unbelief, lies, breaking of promises, weaknesses, even death, none of these contingencies can disturb or derail what God alone has pledged to do in this covenant. When Abraham is given a measuring stick whereby his descendants can judge the time that will escape, excuse, that will elapse from promise to fulfillment. What's the measuring stick? Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Now, we count a generation to be about 38 years. But this was not the biblical measure in Abraham's day. A generation was the age of a man when his first son, his legal heir, was born. Genesis 2.21 verse 5 says, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Let me read that. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. Verse 14 says there were... 14 generations. So that's 400 years, or exactly what we are told in verse 13. That's how accurate God's word is. In Exodus 6, verse 4, God explains to Moses, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. All this is in perfect harmony with the original cutting of the covenant in our text, Genesis 15. God was laying it all out. You're going to get this land. 
Now, what are the characteristics of God's covenant? This is important. First of all, it is a unilateral covenant, which is very strange. What is a unilateral covenant? It is a covenant. It is an agreement which is written, ratified, executed by one person. One person. This is practically unheard of in our day. Think of the covenants. Think of the contracts that people make today. You go to the bank to secure a mortgage for your house, a house you want to purchase. We'll call the bank the party of the first part. Uses a standard form wherein you are listed as the party of the second part. And all the way through the closing, if you've ever been to one of these closings, an official representative of the bank will hand you form after form with a line that says, sign here. And when all is said and done, the bank promises you a certain amount of money to finance your new home based upon a certain agreed upon monthly payment and an agreed interest rate extended over many months and years calculated on the balance due after you have made your down payment. Same if you want to buy a camper, or you want to buy a car, or you want to buy a business. This is how it's done. No one considers such contracts to be one-sided. Oh, no. (laughs) Each party, in this case, you and the bank, agree to certain conditions to make the deal work. And if either side defaults on their obligations... Legal action can be taken. There are late payment fees. There are foreclosures. There are sheriff sales and the like. Usually due in some default on the part of the persons who took out the loan because the bank is not being paid the agreed upon monthly mortgage payment. So if you're defaulting, you're going to be in trouble. Now, maybe adverse circumstances are responsible. That is to say, maybe the mortgagee lost his or her job. There's no money that can be paid to the bank. So, they say, in effect, I'm sorry. I guess you'll have to take the house back. But the obligation remains just because you can't pay it doesn't take it away. With God's covenant with Abraham, there was no joint agreement. Abram is in a deep sleep. He's under a tree somewhere from which he cannot be aroused. God alone walks the covenant aisle to pledge his veracity to keep the covenant. The symbols there being a smoking fire pot or furnace And a blazing torch, verse 17, heat and light representing God.
The fire pot or furnace was used in ancient times to purify metals. All metals, including those we count as very precious, such as silver and gold, are found in ore containing an admixture of various impurities. The ore has to be heated very hot to extract the pure gold or the silver, and this occurs as the impurities, the dross, floats to the surface while they're heating it, which the metalsmith then skims off and keeps skimming off until nothing but the pure metal remains. Peter alludes to this process in a spiritual application as he talked about the trials of our faith. Let me read it for you. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and following. You have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, writes Peter. These have come to you that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7. Or Malachi wrote, he, referring to God, will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. Malachi 3, verse 3 and 4. So Malachi is saying, that God refines his people until he sees his own righteous image in them. May I say that this is what our trials are designed to do, brethren. They are painful, but they're beneficial. There's a second symbol here, though. Blazing torch. Not just the fire pot, but a blazing torch. That speaks of illumination. The Apostle John wrote, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1 verse 5. Jesus declared of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8 verse 12. This light stands for enlightenment through truth. Scripture says this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But, but, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 3, verse 19 and following. So the bottom line is that while Abram was in a deep sleep, we might say, in a comatose state. God ratified 
the covenant alone, thereby pledging his fulfillment on his own integrity, on his own power. Abraham, yeah, he's the recipient, but he's not a participant. God is doing something for him, to him. He's going to receive the benefit of it. But he can't say, well, I did my part, I did this. I want you to think about this in light of how the gospel is preached in our day. The second characteristic of God's covenant was that it was eternal. This is because when God makes a promise, he does not change his mind. Why should he? There is no impediment, no unforeseen circumstance, no lapse of knowledge or power, things that cause us to change our minds. Nothing like this intrudes or alters God's plans. I love this about God. The prophet Balaam reported to King Balak, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers 23 verse 19. The implied answer is no. If God promises, he's going to do it. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The prophet Samuel told Saul that his kingdom was to be taken from him and given to another. And to finalize it, he went on to say, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should ever change his mind. 1 Samuel 15 verse 29. And all of this is to assure Abraham as well that the covenant God made with him was irrevocably fixed and unalterable. Our text says, verse 18, to your descendants I give, literally, I have given this land. We would say it this way, I will give. Thinking of the land being possess sometime in the future but God doesn't say that to your descendants I have given this land in other words it's a done deal this agrees with the promise of verse 16 in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here it's their land Now, our difficulty in understanding some of this is due to us being in a hurry, being overly time conscious. This is who we are. We know that a lot happened to Abraham's descendants from Genesis 15 till they took possession of Canaan through a famine. Jacob and his sons ended up in Egypt. After Joseph's death, a new Pharaoh made slaves of the Israelites Exodus, but that took place on Israel's part, and an older generation was not permitted to enter the promised land, you remember. Later under Joshua, yeah, the new generation did enter, but their repeated idolatry led to many years of 
judges rising to rule, but only for a short time before they would again slip back into sin and the people with them. Then they had to ask for a king. Saul was a miserable failure. King David came next because of his sin. The kingdom was taken from him and given to Solomon, but was divided into north and south, and they were taken into captivity again, this time by the northern enemies. Both divisions of Solomon's breakup were taken into captivity. Eventually, if you read your scriptures, eventually they did come back under Ezra, and Nehemiah in the days of Darius the Mede. Centuries came, centuries went. Two world wars came and went. And Israel's position now in the land promised to Abraham. What I'm saying is the covenant God made with him is eternal. Time has not destroyed the covenant, but it has confirmed it. See, we're impatient. We're saying, boy, that, don't, that took centuries. What, what kind of a promise? It, it might have taken centuries, but the point is God still keeping his promises. Third thing we note is that it was a covenant of grace. And by grace we mean more than a gift. We mean that it was undeserved. What did Abraham do to deserve God's call to leave Ur of the Chaldees and head for a land promised to him? You know anything about his history? Abraham was an idolater, just like all the people of the ancient world. As such, God was as much opposed to his lifestyle, to his sin, as to all the people who never called upon God. His father Terah was a pagan. His brother Nahor was a pagan. His brother Haran was a pagan. And he was a pagan. Why do I use the word pagan? It's the Greek word ethnos, of ethnic culture distinct from one that follows after God. That's what the word means. Hence, Gentile, those divide of, devoid of religious attachment and allegiance to a knowledge of God. A person with but a loincloth and a string of beads around their neck can be a true Christian in the biblical definition, and a person with a three-piece suit and a tie can be a pagan in the biblical definition. It has to do with one's heart, their relationship to the God of the Bible. Abraham was a pagan when God called him. He did nothing to commend himself to God. What is more, the people who became his descendants, the Israelites, God said of them, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord 
did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 9. God is saying, I did it all. And you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Verse text, verse 7 of our text, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. Or again, verse 18, to your descendants, I give this land. The covenant with Abraham was one of grace, a gift given, not an acquisition earned. say, well, why are you laboring this point? What's the, what's the deal on that? Okay, so, so it was free to Abraham and God gave it to him. Okay. Well, it is emblematic, brethren, of the covenant of salvation. We know from our study of the Bible that the Abrahamic covenant has its greatest fulfillment in the new covenant of salvation and the same characteristics apply. Jesus ratified this covenant by himself, unilaterally, without your input or mine. What do, I'm, let me read it for you. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However... To the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Romans 4 verse 3 and 5. Peter put it this way. He, Jesus, himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. In other words, we reap the reward for Jesus' suffering. Paul puts it this way. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians 1 verse 4. So brethren, we're not just asleep and in a coma like Abram, but as Paul tells us, we were dead in transgressions. Ephesians 2 verse 5. Dead people do not act. They are acted upon. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. So we need to understand that salvation is not a partnership. You walking together with God to ratify the covenant. Oh no. There was only one person nailed to the tree and that was the Lord Jesus. There's only one person that walked covenant row and ratified the Abrahamic covenant for Abraham. That was a fire pot representing God alone while Abraham was sleeping under a tree somewhere. And then note that salvation is eternal, so time is not a governing factor. I love this. Today, while we are still alive and active, or dead and buried in the grave, the promise of life eternal if applied to us or our loved ones, is as real and fresh and visible as the day God called us out of our paganism into his wonderful kingdom of light. Salvation is not something that grows old and becomes outdated and ineffectual like a piece of stale bread. No, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread... He's going to live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 51. In the the day of Peter's uh, ministry, the scoffers said, Where is this coming that he promised? But they said it just about like that. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3, verse 4. They're saying to Peter, you know, you've been saying the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. Well, where is he? They were showing their lack of faith and they were showing their inconsistency. So Peter answered, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So time, even centuries of time, cannot cancel or nullify the covenant of salvation. It is as eternal as the God who ratified it. We need to praise him for that. And then thirdly, salvation is by grace, which means it's a gift. God's promise to Abraham was as an heir of the land, an heir from a man whose procreative powers were dead, who would bless the world and a land which his many descendants would one day occupy. 
Jesus was that heir and heaven was that land. Paul puts it this way. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3 verse 29. Of Abraham he wrote, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign, foreign country. Did you get that? He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Wait a minute. Why are they living in tents? He goes on. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They were longing for a better country. A heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Paul is saying that Abraham was aware of where salvation was. It was with the Heavenly Father. And the land he was looking for was not terra firma in a little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. The land he was looking for was the courts of heaven. Wow. Say he couldn't know that. Paul says he knew it. That's what he was looking for. He wasn't looking for Jerusalem. He wasn't looking for Jordan Valley. He wasn't looking for anything that you find in Palestine. Wisdom speaks in the book of Jeremiah. And she says, I love those who love me. And those who seek me find me. Proverbs, that was Proverbs, rather. 8, verse 17. The Jeremiah text says, You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Brethren, God isn't hiding. He's not hiding from humanity. The invitation is to seek, and you'll find. Look for him, and you'll find. The land of promise is not a strip of soil along the Mediterranean coast. That's God's home in the heavens where he has gone to prepare a place for all of his disciples. The scripture says, and if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come back to receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. That's what the Lord's doing. He's building a place for his people on his own merit. Praise God. Lord, we thank you for your word. Praise you for it. Abraham, we, we sell him short. I think we sell all the patriarchs a little short. We think, oh, they couldn't possibly have known about the salvation that's going to come in Christ. 
they couldn't possibly have known about. The courts of heaven and all of those things. And yet the scripture shows that they did know. Now it's true. We know more. We have more of the details because the new covenant expands it and makes it more understandable. But they knew more than just a skeleton. They knew the heart of the matter. They knew God was real. They knew that they needed a savior. What were all those animal sacrifices? It was to show that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What about that lamb of God that would come? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. They knew what a lot of our people in our day don't know. And I say that not judgmentally, but because it's true. In many churches, it's good works that's being preached. Not the sacrificial cross experience of Jesus. They say, well, we're not going to have any of that bloody sacrifice stuff. We don't like that. Speak of the blood and the cross as gruesome. Who wants that? So they speak of doing good works, being kind to your neighbor, seeing if you can't provide food for those that are hungry, clothes for those that are uh, without clothing, housing for those that don't have housing. And they believe that this, of course, earns them a spot in glory. It will earn them nothing. Unless the giving has been as a result of the fact that Christ has taught them about their own sinfulness and has forgiven them. And they want to be a blessing to others. Lord, help us to have an understanding of what's been done for us. We'll praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. For our closing hymn, let's sing at 553 in the Brown Hymnal. Five five three in the brown hymnal. There's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there in the sweet. By and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore, we shall sing on that beautiful shore. The melodious songs of the blessed, and our spirit shall sorrow no more. 
not a sigh for the blessings of rest. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. To our bountiful Father above, we will offer tribute of praise for the glorious gift of His love and the blessings that hallow our days. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. I like that hymn. It speaks of hope, doesn't it? It tells us uh, all is not lost. There's a great homecoming that's in the works. And dying is gain, Paul says. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's better. I go to be with Christ trust him thank you lord for your salvation that we have that it's eternal that it's fully worked out by you and your your grace we are the recipients wow what a joy of that we don't deserve it but your grace reached down and touched our lives when you opened our heart to faith and you granted us repentance so we could turn away from our sins. And you put the emphasis on Jesus where it needs to be. And I pray for all of us today that we will rejoice in the fact that God has a great salvation. From all eternity, he's been working out. So we're not saved as an accident. We're saved on purpose. The scripture says our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. What's that? That is a salvation on purpose. A salvation that was planned from all of eternity. And we rejoice in that today. But our hearts grieve too because we have relatives and friends, O Lord, that do not know you yet. But we still have hope. We still pray for them. And we ask that you will, in fact, grant the salvation to those we love and to those that we witness to, to those that are family and friends. And help us to be witnesses for the gospel and to share what you've shared with us, that those we love might come to know you as well. And we'll praise you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name, amen. We are dismissed. Do you have any details on it? Pardon me? 
You know, have any details on it? I just thought, do you know where? Yep, in Rochester at that funeral home. Uh, what is it? It's called a couple of different things. The one, let me read it. <laughs> Which it on the that Yeah, could you do that? Yeah. 